Jesus Grace Church. Building relationships that make followers of Jesus. Know, grow, go. To know him, to grow in him, to go with him. I was going to say, I, I feel like Gene Autry, you know, Gene Autry, the first of the singing cowboys, he had one of his signature song was Back in the Saddle Again. So, here I am. Another cowboy you see on the screen, some of you will recognize him as a youngster. I uh, remember hearing probably the first classical number I know is strains of Rossini's William Tell Overture. And uh, announcers say, a fiery horse with the speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a high party high ho silver, the Lone Ranger was his faithful Indian companion, Tonto, the daring and resourceful masked rider of the plains, led the fight for law and order in the early western United States. Nowhere in the pages of history can one find a greater champion of justice. Return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear. yesteryear. From out of the past come the thundering hoofbeats of the great horse Silver, the Lone Ranger rides again. Now, all those episodes, of course, you know the Lone Ranger was masked because he was a surviving member of a troop of rangers, he's hiding his identity, but virtually every episode, and he had to be a really great shot, because he never killed anybody. You know, he always shot the gun out of their hand, I thought that's really special, or shot him in the shoulder or something, beat him up, never killed anybody. But at the end of every episode, just about every episode, someone would come forth and, and, the, and the phrase would be, who was that masked man? I wanted to thank him, you know, whatever, something like that. So anyhow, we're going to continue in our study of the book of Hebrews, and today we hope to unmask, as it were, a very interesting but mysterious character of the Bible, a man named Melchizedek. Now, we've already mentioned his name a few times in the past few chapters, and we're going to endeavor to explain a little bit better about who he was, what he did. So let me give you a quick review of the book. First of all, we don't know, as we said, who wrote the book, humanly speaking. God, of course, authored it through the power of the Holy Spirit. But, and we don't even really know the title. The title to the Hebrews was from very early sources, but it's not mentioned in the book itself. But the purpose of the book seemed to be very clear. Probably very early book, before the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 AD, because that would have certainly been brought up. But the question was, I believe it was written to Jewish believers who were in danger of going back into the Old Testament that could never save, going back to something that was familiar to them. And the author gives very severe warnings to these individuals about what would happen if they did. Now, there are some, of course, who believe that that those warnings, including the loss of your salvation, if you turn back, you'll no longer be saved. We know from other scripture that that's impossible. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will no way cast out. I give, unto my, give them life into my Father's hand, and nobody can pluck them out of my Father's hand. And we know that our salvation, our eternal destiny is determined not by our work, but by the work of Christ who died on the cross to pay for our sins. So certainly we cannot lose our salvation. But there are others who, because the warnings are pretty severe, they think, well, this must have been just addressed to people who think they're saved, but maybe not. I, I take exception with that because so much of the verses in there so, talk so precisely about 
those that have received the Holy Spirit, shared in him, tasted the heavenly gift, so forth. So later on, we're going to see in chapter uh, 10, it says that they, they are in danger of trampling underfoot the blood of the covenant by which they have been sanctified. That seems to indicate a past tense that they have. And also, of course, in chapter 12, he warns the believers that we are in danger of being chastened and scourged by the Lord as he disciplines every son whom he receives. So I look at the book as one that is written to you and I. Not, we're not Jewish. We don't have danger of going back to the temple. There's no longer a temple there. But we have a danger sometimes of just kind of giving up on what we're doing. And the author wants us to persevere and move on to maturity, which is what Pastor Matt was talking about uh, a couple of weeks ago. So keep that in mind as we go forward. That is, this book is written to you as much as anybody. But, but the, the challenges of the book, the writer is trying to compare the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus to any other priest that could possibly have existed. And that his ministry and his role was not founded in the roots of Israel's Levitical priesthood. So that's what we're going to come to. So let's look at the verses first of all. And I'll read those for you, and you can read along on the screen if you'd like, or in your own Bibles. Chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the, the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So I would put it to you that my main point on this whole passage would be that the eternal heavenly priesthood of Jesus is superior to the temporal, earthly priesthood of Levi. Let's look back at the first two verses again. We'll explain a little bit about the historical background. For Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of the Most High, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is by first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Now, we've mentioned thus far in our study uh, the name of Melchizedek three times by, by name in the book of Hebrews, and we'll see it again later, uh, another three times, we'll see it three times in this text. And it refers to an incident that happened in the life of Abraham. You remember that 
God called Abraham out of the land of Ur to a promised land, the land of Canaan, and he obeyed God and he went there and he settled in the land. And he had with him his nephew Lot. And as their flocks grew, there was conflict between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of, of Abraham. And Abraham said, okay, let's, let's divide up for peace. You pick out whatever land you want. And so Lot had first choice, and Lot chose the very fertile green plain around Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if you go there today, it's not green and fertile anymore. Uh, but he chose that, and he went down there, and he settled around that land. Well, the incident in, in, uh, in Hebrews, uh, or I mean in Genesis chapter 14, was um, the fact that there were four great kings from the east, probably Mesopotamia, that had come into the land, and they conquered the five kings of Jordan, the area where Lot lived, and they took all their stuff, they plundered it, and took all those goods back, and took with them some of the people as captive. Well, word came to Abraham, and he gathered together a force of 300 and, what is it, 318 men um, that he, of his own, trained men, and he pursued after the these kings as they were heading back to their land. And he went and conquered them, and he rescued his lot and his family, and he took back all the spoils. And on his way back to his own home, he met up with this man named Melchizedek. And he gave to Melchizedek a tenth of all of the spoils. And And Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And so that's the story that's behind this particular incident and this man named Melchizedek. Now, as we proceed back to the third and fourth verses of our chapter, it says, Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, neither having beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. So he asked the question, who is Melchizedek? And there's basically two primary interpretations of understanding of who he was. The first was that Melchizedek was actually an appearance of God. Now, in the Old Testament, God appeared to men in different ways. The burning bush with uh, Moses, he appeared as a man to others. Often he's referred to as the angel of the Lord. Not just an angel, but the angel of the Lord, as to Solomon's parents and others, uh, Gideon. And so we call that a theophany, from theos, God, and phane, which means appearance, theophany. But I would, have, I would suggest to you that every appearance of God in the Old Testament is actually a Christophany, which means he's the, the second person of the triune Godhead, the Son of God, appearing visibly to man. Because in the New Testament, we find that uh, John, for instance, writes that no man has seen God, but the Son, the only begotten Son reveals who the Father is. And in Colossians, Paul would write that in him is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So I would suggest to you that it's a theophany, but it's also a Christophany. If that's one particular suggestion, now that's, that gains a great deal of support, primarily because, of, first of all, because of his titles. He's called King of Righteousness. Melchizedek means King of Righteousness. Zedek is the Hebrew word for righteous. Uh, king of Peace. King of Salem. Salem means peace. Uh, that would be probably initially in the area where Jerusalem is. That's what Jerusalem gets its name as well. 
And we know, of course, that God is the one who brings true peace. I've often contended that peace is not just the absence of conflict. You know, like when I was a young person, they had all these protests against me, you know, make love, not war, all that kind of stuff. Peace isn't the absence of conflict, it's the resolution of conflict. It's doing something that brings peace more in a lasting sense. And God is the only one who can give true peace, not only peace with God that in our salvation, but he also brings us peace as we live day by day. So that's one thing, his titles. He's also called the priest of the Most High God. Secondly, the writer states that he was without father and mother without genealogy and, and having neither beginning of days nor end of life. So many think, of course, this is really Jesus. Really, it's not technically, you really can't call Jesus in the Old Testament because he's not, he, he was given that name at his earthly human birth, but the Son of God. Uh, that this is the Son of God who was appearing to Abraham and that Abraham gave him an offering or a tenth of what he had. The second view is that he's just a, he's really a, a godly man who was a forerunner to Jesus, that is, in his priesthood. Now, that's, that can be uh, asserted because even though the names apply to Jesus or the Son of God, they could apply to any godly man. Now, by the way, I, I, think it's, I think we should be reminded that, that Abraham wasn't the only person in the world that worshiped the one true God. You know, I, I find it kind of amusing that when you, you watch some of these TV programs, they talk about anthropologists talk about how early man had all of these gods, the God of the sun, the wind, the rain, and all these things. And eventually it got distilled down into the great monotheistic one God uh, religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. But when you think about it, really the reverse is true. Because we're all descended, not just from Adam and Eve, but Noah and his family. And when they got out of the ark, they still believed in a one true God. It wasn't like they worshipped everything else. But like Paul would later write in Romans chapter 1, men tend to take the truth that's innate within them about the God creator, and they distort that, and they worship crawling things and beasts of the field and so forth. So the, the evolution of religion, if you will, is not many gods to one. It's one God to many. And some of us just know that the scriptures are true, but there's only one true God. So in any event, the fact that he was a godly man, a priest, that he did not have... Uh, a father and mother doesn't necessarily mean he had no literal father or mother, but that that wasn't important. See, in Israel, if you wanted to be a priest, you just didn't sign up for priesthood. You had to be born into the tribe of Levi. That was what was important. And if you wanted to be a high priest, you had to be specifically from the household of Aaron. Uh, that's Moses' brother. So you just didn't sign up for the priesthood. You had to be that. With Melchizedek, he had no genealogy. He had, we don't know anything about his parents, his genealogy, or so forth. So that could very well be the point of the author. Not that he didn't have a father and mother, but that it wasn't important to his priesthood, as it is for those in Israel. Now, I've waffled back and forth with those, both of those, and you can come up with your own conclusions. I tend to, I tend to gravitate toward the second, that is, he was just a godly man, that, um, that honored God, as there were others that had. Uh, we find that throughout the history. 
but that he represents a new, a different kind of priesthood that is outside the household of Israel and the tribe of Levi. And that's what makes it superior. It's not dependent on birth. So I would suggest that if he, it says he, really, he resembled the Son of God, that if he was really the Son of God, he might just go ahead and say so. So he's just a type of the priesthood of Jesus. Jesus, of course, was of the tribe of Judah. That was the tribe of David. Uh, he was a king. Like Melchizedek, Jesus combined the roles of both priest and king. And that would have never happened in the normal course of a Jewish person in the first century. So he has both. So I would suggest as my first subpoint that Jesus' superiority is demonstrated by the fact that like Melchizedek, his priesthood has no beginning and no end. Okay, so that, that's one of the important points that the writer of Hebrews is making in regards to that. Now, our passage today includes a lot of words that use the word tithe or tithing. Uh, literally, it means the tenth part. And some translations use tenth and some tenth part. Some say tithing. They're both the same Greek word, decatain, which you can see from Greek is where we get our word decade and tenth and so forth, December. And so I want to talk just a minute on the, uh, kind of a side note here to our, our, our study of Hebrews about giving. Uh, I told uh, Pastor Matt I'd tackle that because I'm no longer under salary, so I'm not... I'm not I don't have, a, you know, any advantage to that. You know, a lot of us, we, we hesitate to talk about giving a lot because there's so many so-called preachers that are just after your money and have gotten rich over that. And we don't want anybody to think that that's the only reason we want you here uh, or that that's the most important thing because uh, it's not. It's not at all. But the Bible does speak about giving and we need to be uh, aware of that. And when it comes up, we want to teach it. So I thought I'd take a moment to talk about tithing. Now, there's a lot of confusion about a believer's responsibility to give in this present age, and it begins with terminology. Um, as I say, the word tithe just simply means a tenth. Now, many people speak of tithing in a general sense, meaning all kinds of gifts or offering or whatever, uh, but many teach that tithing is our obligation to give 10% of whatever we have. And uh, I had a lady in the church here years ago who she had been taught previous that it was her obligation to give 10%, and then anything above that was an offering. And she was a very generous, I didn't know all the details, but I knew she knew her to be very generous about her giving and so forth, and that was great. And I have no bones to pick with that. But personally, I never speak of tithing, per se, for several reasons. First of all, it is not taught in the New Testament to the church. The only time the tithe is mentioned in the New Testament is here and in the Gospels when Jesus is talking about the Pharisees who are proud of their tithing, only in a negative sense. So it's not mentioned in any of the other epistles or any directions of the church to give 10%. Um, but the second reason I don't teach it is because First question people ask me sometimes is, well, if I'm supposed to give 10%, is that off the gross or off the net? You know, is it before taxes or after? Do I have to tithe on that boat that I just bought? Or do I, you know, you, know, you get all kinds of 
petty things about that stuff. So, so the third reason is when you study the tithes that the children of Israel were obligated to give, it's not just one tithe of 10%. There were several. Most people say at least three, and it would actually total like 23% of, a, of their revenue. Now, that kind of high level was important in Israel because when the children of Israel came into the promised land, each of the tribes were given land according to the size of their tribes, except for the tribe of Levi, because Levi was the priest, and they scattered all through the land, and so it was, it was a, a duty of the people to support the, the priesthood and all the functions of worship, whether it was the tabernacle or later the temple. So that was very important. But they were given 23%. So if you want to go by the Old Testament tithe, you might want to think about that. So lastly, and most importantly, other than the fact that I don't believe it's taught in the New Testament, I think the tithe as 10% can, be, can become very legalistic and minimalistic. I've had people say, you know, you, you, you put out a plea for some extra funds for a missionary or something else, and they say, well, I gave my 10%, that's all I need to do, you know. And it becomes very mechanical when you just say that. Now, I, quite frankly, I think 10% is a nice round way of figuring off your giving, but but there are reasons why it doesn't always seem uh, realistic. It's, to my mind, I've compared it to attitudes that people have toward the Ten Commandments. It's like, there's ten things I'm supposed to do, and that's good enough. And I always compare it to my love for my wife. I could say to Hallie, okay, um, I'm going to give you ten ways in which I'm going to express my love to you. And I'll do those 10 things, but after that, don't ask for anything, you know. I don't think that would be, I don't think that would fly, would you? <laughs> it rather, it should be like the uh, sonnet by Elizabeth Barrett Browning, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways, the height and depth and breadth and so forth. It should be unlimited. So our love for the Lord should be without reservation, as Mike and Zara just sang, he wants it all. He wants you. And so we need to give fully in that regard, not just the minimal of what we have to do. So, Jesus himself summed up the law when he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second command was like that, love your neighbors yourself. So it should be, uh, it should be unlimited, not just limited to certain niche. So, I also... I just don't speak of tithing as such. I recognize, for one thing, let's just give you an example. Let's say, I know the national poverty level for a family of four is $26,500 currently. Let's just rent out $20,000. Let's say somebody earned $20,000, and you told them, you've got to give 10% of that. Okay, that's two grand, and you have 18 left. Somebody makes $200,000 a year. 10% of that's 20000 Now, it's a whole lot easier for the guy that earned $200,000 to live on 180000 than it is for a, a couple or a family to live on eighteen, right? So it doesn't seem like it's also reasonable. Well, I'm going to give you some, some verses to uh, read uh, about giving. Where's my page on that? I lost it. Uh, let's put them up on the screen. I'll just read it off of that. These are... These are New Testament patterns for giving. 
Uh, most of these verses are from either 2 Corinthians 8 or 2 Corinthians 9, and so you can read the whole chapters. I, I encourage you to do so. Uh, Paul writes, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have ever overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Now notice a couple things in there. It talks about the churches of Macedonia. A lot of times the, the, the gifts that were given, the offerings that were taken, were for directly the benefit of people that were suffering famines and so forth. You know, they didn't have to worry about electric lights and air conditioning and buildings to pay for. It was to people. But notice that they were, they were giving out their abundance of joy while their poverty was extreme. So they were, they were willing to do that and show their generosity. So generosity is a big key in our giving today. Also, the most, one of the most important things is that last line. Not only did they give resources, monies, or whatever, but they first of all gave themselves to the Lord. Now, we've had people in our church over the years that I knew didn't have a whole lot of money, but they gave of themselves. They may have you know, done tasks around the church or done special things where they couldn't give monetary gifts, they could give other things. And most important to you and I is to give ourselves first to the Lord. Let's see the next section of verses, because I don't have it on here. I must have missed that page. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. But that is a matter of fairness. Your abundance of the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. In other words, if the readiness is there, are you willing? Give willingly to the Lord. And he's not saying, I don't want you to be poor just to supply their abundance, but out of your abundance, supply to them. And then maybe later in the return, they do the same to you. So it's a matter of willingness and so forth. Let's next verses. If we will. Okay, I think I did find one page. It says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So the point is, what you sow, you reap. Now, I, I, like the, I want to point out the last part of that uh, Mike up here always includes that, just about always includes the fact that we need to give cheerfully, you know, not out of compulsion, not because somebody's holding a whip over your head, cheerfully. The, the Greek word that's translated cheerful is literally hilaros, which we get our, our English word hilarious. So you'll hear some preachers say you need to be a hilarious giver. So next time you put your money in, in the offering plan, I want you to go, ah, no, I'm just <laughs> But you need to be a cheerful giver. Now, I, uh, I will include one, one last one here. That is uh, 1 Timothy uh, 6, verses 17 and 18. Uh, this is Paul's instruction to the rich amongst us, amongst the church. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, 
but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So there's some challenges to us as well. Now, I, I recognize, and by the way, 1 Timothy also includes earlier the, the most misquoted verse in the Bible. And a lot of people say, money's the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, money is just an exchange of your time. You might as well say, my life, I hate my life. It's, you know, but it's just, it's, it's the love of money, the striving for money as it ends. Now, I want to acknowledge the fact that there are preachers and televangelists and so forth and so on that manipulate those verses to try to get more money out of you. You know, there's a verse in Luke that says, uh, give it should be given to you, uh, pressed down and overflowing. And they basically say, okay, you give your little money, you sow, you give me your seed, buddy, and you'll get money back. That's like treating God like a slot machine. You put it in your coin and you get more back. Your blessings may be not material. God blesses you in other ways. I often thank him and bless him for the things I didn't get, you know, the troubles I didn't have, you know. So don't look at it as that, and I'm certainly not going to try to subsidize my new Rolls Royce by the gifts of people in the church. That's not a good thing to do. So, by the way, I don't drive a Rolls Royce. I have an old Rolls Royce. No, I don't. <laughs> yeah, there times past growing up in the church, I know people... Sometimes they like to keep the pastor poor, you know. If he shows up in a Cadillac, you're kind of, ooh, what's <laughs> Today I'd be a Porsche, but anyway. Let's, let's return to the narrative as we finish up this, this section. Verse 7, um, it says, It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In other words, Abraham was the inferior, and he was blessed by Melchizedek. Now, we sometimes speak about blessing God, which we do in a sense, but he's really the one that blesses us. So that's what he's talking about, Melchizedek superior to Abraham. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, that is, the Levites receive tithes, but in the other case, by one whom who is testified that he lives. One might say that even Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, that sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? All he's saying is the priesthood of Melchizedek was superior to the priesthood of Levi because Abraham was the great-grandfather of Levi. So, in essence, the seed of Abraham was still in his loins long before Levi was born. So, Levi was giving ties to Melchizedek, in a sense. And the last word for, last verse, now if perfection had been obtainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the, priest, the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? And of course, the other place where Melchizedek is mentioned, and it was quoted here in Hebrews, was in Psalm 110, Psalm of David, is a psalm about the Messiah coming and being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So that's why he's saying. So my last point, my last sub-point is that the superiority of Jesus' priesthood is seen in that Levi, through Abraham, paid homage to him. So Levi was inferior to Melchizedek's priesthood, and so if the Levitical priesthood could produce perfection, why would there be a different priesthood? And again, the point of the whole book is that they need to be reminded that the sacrifice of Jesus is superior to any animal sacrifice. Later, we're going to see that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, 
what the blood of Christ offered once for all could. And so that the sacrifice of Jesus is superior and the priesthood of Jesus is superior. And he's using this character of Melchizedek to demonstrate that even Levi was subjugated to the priesthood of Melchizedek. And if you choose to believe that Melchizedek was actually an appearance of the Son of God, I'm fine with that. Like I say, I've gone back and forth. Nobody knows for sure. We'll find out someday. So let's look again that... The, my last point, my last sub-point, was the fact that Jesus' superiority is demonstrated by the fact that, like Melchizedek, his priesthood has no beginning and no end. And my main point is the eternal, heavenly priesthood of Jesus is superior to the temporal, earthly priesthood of Levi. His priesthood lasts forever. He always has been the one who intercedes for us. We... Uh, we don't need to go between between us and God. Now, we do have, you know, uh, for prayers, people, you, uh, Peter writes that we are, we as believers are a royal priesthood. So we do intercede on each other's behalf, but there's no mediator between God and man other than Jesus. I know I was told earlier today, uh, Mike said that the funeral service for Matt's grandmother was yesterday and he kind of shook things up by, he was asked to speak and so he let him have it. <laughs> so, uh, the, the, you know, uh, the, Bible says there's no mediator between God and men except the man Christ Jesus. So we don't need to pray to the saints. We don't need to pray to Mary. We don't need to pray, uh, ask the priest for forgiveness. It's God that forgives sins. And, uh, and you need to be rest secure in the fact that we have an eternal priest who is in the heavenlies and he works on our behalf and he intercedes for us daily and he defends us before the great accuser, Satan. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the, the, the person of Jesus who did it all for us. Jesus paid it all, all to him, I owe. Help us to be always mindful of, of that, to be confident and assured in our salvation, but also to be challenged, to persevere, to press on to maturity, and to give freely and generously as you may allow us, as we, you have prospered us, as you've given us means to do so. We thank you for so many people here that are good givers and, and have faithfully supported this ministry as well as others. And we just thank you for this body of believers. Help us to be, stand firm in our salvation and liberty in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more information, look us up on our website, www.villasgrace.com or drop us a line via email. Connect at villasgrace.com dot com.